Yo, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Build Your Network podcast, the only top-rated show committed to helping you grow your business, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Let's get into the show. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Midweek Mashup. If you are new to the show, this is the episode every week we put together that's one topic, and then we pull clips from past episodes of guests who talk about that topic the most. So today's episode is all about leadership, and we are featuring Edward Sullivan, John Baird, and John Maxwell. John Maxwell needs no introduction, 80-plus leadership books, most of them New York Times bestsellers, one of the most prolific self-help authors of our time. And then John Baird and Edward Sullivan have been in Silicon Valley world for uh, decades in uh, consulting roles, consulting CEOs in leadership of you know Fortune 10 companies and helping them with leadership structure and organization and all that kind of stuff. So this episode is going to be really, really good if you're uh, somebody that's looking for more leadership help and advice at the moment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode on leadership with John Maxwell, John Baird, and Edward Sullivan. So you have your bachelor's at uh, Christian University, then you went back and got your MDiv, right? For those listening, it's a master's in divinity. And then you went and earned your doctorate after that, all from Christian universities and seminaries, specifically for ministerial work. How did your formal training in that world impact your ability to speak and write and lead effectively? Well, what happened is, as I shared with you, by the time I was 29, I had the Temple Arch Church. And so pastors were coming to me and asked me what was happening. How did I do this? And I came to the conclusion in the beginning, I wasn't sure. I mean, I was just telling them to work hard and love people. I mean, it wasn't that complicated. And, and uh, as I backed away and started to really ask myself what was the key, I realized that the key was leadership and that I really knew how to lead well. And at that time, began to buy into a principle that has been the fuel for everything I do in leadership, and that is everything rises and falls on leadership. The moment I bought into that, Travis, then I said the greatest thing I can do to help people is to teach them how to lead. If I could help them lead, I'm going to be their friend. So I made that commitment. I started first with pastors. And then what happened is uh, my publisher, uh, the books were really doing well. Publisher came to me and basically said, we've done research and we've discovered that two-thirds of your books, they're not being bought by pastors of the Christian community. So they're being bought in secular bookstores by business people. Your principles are resonating with the business world. And literally, of course, I'm a person of faith. So literally at that moment, I felt called to make a leader shift, okay? A leader shift and, and go over to that world because I thought I have a very rare opportunity to influence people that most people will never get. And so for the last 20 plus years, that's what I've been doing. As you know, logic's not what gets people to get a copy of the book. Emotion is, right? So tug on our heartstrings, John. Why should every single person listening to this right now go get a copy of your new book? Well, it, <laughs> maybe every person shouldn't, but every person that wants to be, to be successful should, okay? So let me qualify that. If you got listeners that really don't care, they don't want to buy the book. It would be a waste of time for them. But But if you really want to increase your influence with people, and if you really want to help people, then this book is essential. And here's why. Leadership doesn't stay the same. So a person that has a leadership position, if they rely on that position, they're not going to lead very long and lead it very effectively because life changes very quickly. And especially with social media, the culture that we live in today, you have to be very flexible. You have to be very agile. And the greatest success for tomorrow is having success today because you want to hold it. You don't want to change. And this book is all about how to make changes, how to make shifts as a leader that will allow you to not only uh, strengthen your leadership, but to sustain your leadership. It, it keeps you in the game. I was being interviewed, Travis, 
And somebody asked me, I said, John, you've been in the leadership game a long time, and why is that? I said, well, it's because I realized that it's not the same game. It's kind of like baseball. Baseball it has the same rules, but it's not the same game. You know, the second day, expect the guys that got the hit last game, they have, get the same hits this time. It's, it's called baseball, but it's a different game. And you've got to you've got to be able to be flexible because this game, maybe Bruce said it yesterday's home runs win today's games. I mean, it just won't do it. So I thought I got to help people be quick and be agile and move. You know, because leaders see more than others see, and they see before others see. So they see a bigger picture, but they see the picture faster. And because of that, they have a great advantage of helping people. But if they're going to take that advantage, they've got to move. I was doing a, I was getting ready to speak for a company. So I was doing a pre-call before I went to speak for them to kind of, you know, get their mind and be able to serve them well. And they told me their theme was fast forward. And they asked me, what do you think of that theme? Well, I said, well, the word fast to me is fast is faster. And uh, fast, you know, tomorrow is not slower. It's faster. You know, anybody that says, well, I'm, I'm going to wait till everything settles down before I make a decision. They're just not going to make that decision. And not only is faster, but forward is shorter. When I started off as a leader, you know, my gosh, you could have a 10-year long-range plan and a five-year short or medium-range plan, a two-year short-range plan. Well, today, a two-year plan is is crazy long. It's shorter. For, for, so it, that since fast is faster and forward shorter, that means the best leaders are going to be the ones that are quick. And uh, I was having dinner one night with Gail, De- Gail Devers, who was a, that great track athlete for the United States in Olympic history. In fact, I think Gail won more medals as a, a female track athlete than any other person. And in fact, when I was, ha- I was having dinner with her, she had read some of my books and she wanted to have a conversation with me. So her and her husband were dinner with her in Atlanta. And uh, we were, so we had a great conversation. In fact, she was getting ready to try out for her fourth Olympic. She was running races and tryouts against girls that were young enough to be her daughter. So we're coming to the end of the conversation. I thought I'd have some fun. I said, Gail, I said, I thought about it throughout the whole meal. I think if you and I ran a hundred yard dash, I think I could win. And you heard me, oh, Travis, she got this look on her face. And she looked at her husband and said, did you hear that? You know, and so she's looking back at me and, you know, here's this Pillsbury Doughboy on the other side of the table saying he can beat this well-honed athlete in a hundred yard race. I mean, I got her to the place where she's ready to kick off her heels, take me outside. And we're going to run a block. She was going to show me. And so I said, before we go out and race, I said, let me just say this. I, I really do know, not think I do know I could, I could win a hundred yard race with you if I had an 80 yard head start. And she started laughing. By the way, Travis, I, I really wanted to say 70 yards, but I wasn't, I wasn't sure I could pull that off at 70. <laughs> but 80, I said, even this fat boy can get across that line before she gets there. And of course, then she started laughing and she said, well, of course, you know, of course you can win the race if you have an 80 yard head start. And, and here's the whole principle. It's very simple. It's not how fast you are. It's how, how quickly you start. And this book is all about understanding that in our culture, you have to be very agile. You've got to be able to make some changes. You've got to make shifts in your leadership and you've got to be on the front end. If you're not on the front end, you're not leading, you're the follower. So I look back at shifts that I had to make, changes I had to make in my leadership to strengthen and sustain it. And I wrote about it. And uh, I think the reader is going to find it incredibly fascinating and highly applicable. I think they're going to look and say, wow, that makes sense to me. I've got to make that shift too. But I not only talk to them about making it, but I, I really work hard on helping them make it. Yeah, you talk about the relational shift, production shift, communication shift, influence shift. There's a lot of different things that he goes into in this book. If you're listening to this, I highly, highly recommend going and picking up a copy of that. John, I want to take this conversation, so run a little bit out of time here. I want to take the conversation, talk a little bit about relationships. I heard you say this on another show you were on. Maybe it was in a book 
that you wrote. I forget exactly the source, but you said relationships are the foundation of leadership. This being the Build Your Network podcast where we talk a lot about relationships was a really, really intriguing statement to me. So how can we make sure that we are building our relationships the right way? It's a great question, Travis. And uh, the reason I believe that relationships are the foundation of leadership to start there is because leadership is influence. And how do you influence people? You influence people by adding value to people relationally. And uh, if I add value to you on a periodic basis, I'm going to have great influence with you. There's no question about it. And so it's huge when we really grasp this, that the relationships and leadership are, are basically synonymous. In fact, people won't go along with you unless they can get along with you. So when I teach leadership, I teach a lot about relationships. So since this is right in the kind of the main lane for your listeners, let me just teach it as simply as I possibly can that, wow, everything I can basically say about relationships. I I wrote a book, 25 Ways to Win with People. And I was greatly affected by Dale Carnegie's book on how to win friends and influence people. So I decided several, a few years ago to write a book on kind of a Dale Carnegie book again. So I put in there 25 ways with people, 25 people principles. And what's interesting, Dale Carnegie's grandson got a hold of me, came to Atlanta where I was at the time, and we had a long lunch. And he brought the book with him and he laid it down in front of me. He said, this is the closest book to what my grandfather ever wrote. And I was greatly honored because I, I first read that book when I was in the seventh grade. And I took two Dale Carnegie courses by the time I graduated from high school. So relationships are huge for me. So basically, this is it in a nutshell. Every person listening right now, I am, you are, Travis, every person listening, they are either a plus or a minus in relationships. They are either giving or they're subtracting. They just are. They're either adding value every day or they're taking value every day. You know, they're either the elevator that's going up and lifting people higher or they're the elevator that's going down and they're taking people down to the basement. Now, this is huge because it starts right there. I mean, I have to ask myself, would people put a plus on me or would they put a minus on me? And we have to have a kind of a realistic assessment of ourselves because I think that the people that are minuses that basically kind of subtract value from people or suck air out of them maybe, I think most of those people don't realize it. I do. I, I don't think people get upset. I just like to make everybody miserable today. And yet they get up and they make everybody miserable and it's because they're not aware. So. I have a beautiful teaching. Can I have three minutes on this? And let me just kind of uh, draw this out. Is that okay, Travis, if I have a couple more minutes here? Yes, sir. Okay, here we go. Yes, sir. That's perfect. So every day I do five things. And if your listeners will just do these five simple things, their life will relationally change immediately. Not in a month, not in six months, not next year. And just in a week, everything begins to change. I do five things every day. Number one is every day I value people. It starts there. That is totally foundational. I value people. I value you, Travel. I value every one of the listeners. I don't know them, but if I saw them, I would value them because I value people. I value everyone. I value people that like me. I value people that don't like me. I I value people that are like me, and I value people that are not like me. I value people. They are God's creation. I value everyone. In fact, because I'm a person of faith, if you went through the Gospels, and if you said you could only pull one thing out about the life of Jesus, just you can only pull one thing out that would describe his life, you would pretty much come up the end of those Gospels and say, Jesus valued people. Just valued them, all of them. In fact, what made the religious community a little bit upset is he seemed to value people they didn't like, you know, sinners a lot more than they thought he should. But he valued everybody. So, And the reason that's essential is, if I truly value you, Travis, if I do, 
then I will look for ways to add value to you. That's just natural. If I don't value you, I won't look for ways or do things that add value to you. It's that simple. So what I'm doing is I'm trying to help people remove the minus, put the plus on their life. So every day I value people, it starts there. That's foundation. Secondly, every day I think of ways to add value to people. I knew I was coming on our on your broadcast today and, and so on your show. And so I looked over some of the thoughts and things that you had for me and I prepared because I want to I thought ahead, how can I add value to Travis? How can I add value to his listeners? So number three, every day I look for ways to add value to people. That now I'm with them. I think before I am with you, but now I'm with you. And I'm I've got my antenna up. I'm just listening and watching and observing. And I'm looking for ways that I, what can I do to add value to traps? I, and what we look for is what we see. So I will see ways to add value to you because I'm looking for ways to add value to you. Number four, every day I do things that add value to people. Every day I make sure that I do things. In fact, in the morning when I wake up, I look at my schedule and I say, okay, you know, who am I going to see? What am I going to do? And okay, what, what can I do specifically today to to add value to people that I come into contact with. And, and every night, the last thing I do is I go through my day again. And I ask the question, who did I add value to today? How did I do that? What did I say? What did I do? If I brought that person up to me, would they look at me and say, John, you really added value to me today. Okay. So every day, every day I, I value people, think of ways to add value to people, look for ways to add value to people, do things to add value to people. And number five, every day I encourage others to add value to people. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now with you and with your listeners. I'm encouraging them to just take this little five-step process. I mean, this is so simple. I mean, everybody can do this. There's no one that's disqualified from this. Everyone can do this. But I encourage other people to pass it on to add value to others also. And it becomes pretty huge after a while. So hopefully, relationally, that'll kind of help your listeners a little bit, get get some practical handles on becoming a plus instead of a minus in their life. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash 
Travis. Just go to Indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need hire, you need Indeed. At some point, it gets to the point where, where you can start spending more of your week in the strategy seat, right? Because like, what, what my kind of question is now is like now that we, like we're 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 having growth, we're having you know so far this year about forty percent month over month um, growth in in revenue for the business, and I often wonder where I should be spending a lot of my time because I really enjoy the strategy part, but also I know that I can't be existing in twelve months from now because I also know that I don't have everything set up completely in an operational from an operational standpoint. For it to be working on a day to day, so I have to be in the day to day. But I know that my yep. best strategic value to the company is in long term, twelve months out, eighteen months out. Where mm-hmm. should that target be as like a CEO or as an executive? How do you start like thinking about uh, uh, spending your time in terms of day to day versus long term strategy? Yeah, I'll this is a good one for you, Edward. Yeah, yeah, this is a good one for you. Yes, um, you know, as you're making the transition out of chief do everything officer <laughs> into like a proper CEO, it just sounds like. You were very much chief do everything officer, and now you're in the middle of that transition. A lot of CEOs experience it's difficult to let go. Right? It's difficult to let go of being really close to the work, close to the transactions, close to the customer. If you're building a product, sometimes the CEO feels like I am the product, right? Mm-hmm. My vision, this is my baby. I can't divorce myself. But that becomes the, the greatest bottleneck to scaling of a company when the CEO holds on too much. And then the next bottleneck is when the C-suite is holding on too much. Mm-hmm. When you've got 200 employees and five people are making all of the decisions, right? So as quickly as possible, we work with our clients to push important strategic decisions down into the organization mm-hmm. so that ultimately a high-functioning you know, stage two CEO is focusing on cash in the business. Do we have enough cash to keep the doors open? Talent, right? Are we recruiting and setting the right cultural framework? to um, inspire people to be creative and vision. Where are we going, right? So where you're at right now, this in-between stage, you're doing a lot of what we call zooming in and zooming out, right? Yeah, totally. And you're kind of like, you're flying at like this 35,000 feet and they're like, oh, wait, hold on. I see something that is not matching my lens for quality. And you zoom in, you work with that person. Hopefully you do some coaching with that person instead of just marching in and telling them what to do. Right, we want that conversation to be developmental, so they leave having learned something instead of they leave the conversation with the task being done well. Sure, right. Yeah, teaching, you're, you're coaching them on becoming a better decision maker themselves. Coaching them on becoming a better decision makers. Yeah, we talk about in the book, you know, using taking your lenses off and putting them on other people. Hmm. You know, you want other people to see through the lens of quality or the lens for the business that you have. That's how you achieve real scale. As a as a CEO, so at the threat of turning this into just like a personal coaching session for me, <laughs> right. we love um, it. Let's go. Let's happens. do it, Travis. <laughs> this often happens when we do interviews. Yeah. They'll say, "Can we get some personal coaching?" Right? <laughs> so, yeah, so funny. So, so right now, I'll give, kind of give you bird's eye view, and I, I, I honestly think this is super helpful for a lot of people listening um, as yeah. well. Yeah, uh, we're we're at the point right now where like my my assistant has become my chief of staff slash operational manager. She basically makes sure the business runs. And then I moved more into generating sales, driving revenue, business development. We just hired our first couple of sales reps to start bringing sales away off of my plate. And then she's kind of in the operational role. 
my question uh, becomes at some point, like, how do you know you're ready for like your first kind of C-suite hire, like an actual, like a six-figure salary type hire with maybe a little bit of equity um, and things like that versus bringing in somebody at, at a junior level and training them up to a certain, you know, like I, I always struggle with, with it's a big, it's a big bullet to bite at some point to, to bring somebody on who essentially I'm paying more than I'm even willing to pay myself at the moment as a startup founder and CEO, because they have more experience, at, at what point should you really start considering bringing in that person? Because from my perspective at this point, it seems like an operator that's a true operator would be extremely helpful for me so that I can pull myself completely out of day-to-day and give it to somebody that I know is extremely competent at building that. Yeah. And that could be for either either, either of you. <laughs> Back to you, John. Yeah, I, I, I think that first hire like that is such a great question. We get this, Travis, all the time. I really appreciate you going there with this. We often work with uh, companies that are sitting on, I don't know whether you've gotten any seed funding and where your funding is, but when you get those millions of dollars, there's an expectation by the investors that you will begin hiring people. And I don't know where that pivot point is around that. I do know that people often wait too long to hire. I'm not sure where you are in your product life cycle. Sometimes you can get the right skill sets that you need without hiring a C-suite person. So it may be that I don't know where the product market fit is and you can get good people at you know better dollar amounts. But when you scale and you get money and you grow and you're now 30 to 50 people, then it's time to start thinking about hiring that individual that will really scale the organization. And that's a whole question around fit of C-suite people, their experience okay. from the apples of the world into the startup world and how they fit the culture. But I don't know. I, I would want to look at product and market fit and where you are and customers and make that decision and cash and do the right financial analysis to decide before you actually jump into a person. But I will tell you that people often will say, I waited too long to yeah. hire the operator. Mm-hmm. I've waited too long. I don't know, Edward, what your thoughts about that are, but it's yeah. interesting. I see a lot of solo founders wanting to kind of hire a lot of junior people, as you said. And mm-hmm. what, that, what ends up happening is they find that just makes them busier sure. because then they just have more, more heads to manage as opposed to hiring a peer and then getting that leadership leverage. And then suddenly you've widened the whole base of the business, right? Mm-hmm. You've created this, well, one, you have someone to um, kick ideas around with. You got someone to hold you accountable, right? You have really a partner in the business. I was running a, a, a solo coaching firm in New York and it was going fairly well. And as soon as John and I started working together, it was just like off to the races yeah. for both of us. You know, it just really grew so much faster because we could hold each other accountable. We could, you know, share ideas and share the responsibility of leading the business. Sure, sure. Uh, okay, so uh, I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll hold off with with my, with my selfish questions if we have time at the end. I want to get back into you know some of, some of this coaching stuff with you guys. This question is for both of you, but we'll start with John first. Is there somebody that you're always looking to for advice as a, as a coach? You're always giving advice. You're always helping people. Yeah. Is there is there are there certain people that have been in your life that you've always kind kind of been looking up to or have been mentors to you? Yeah, there's a lot of models that I have for for good CEO leadership. I mean, I've worked at Apple so long. I mean, I think I, this is over 25 years at Apple. I'm still doing work there. There's a lot of things I admire about Tim Cook, for example. 
just, I mean, we've done so much work around coaching people at Apple through the sort of, you know, focus he's given to coaching because at Apple coaching is just really important. So I, I look to the way they position coaching, the way they look at coaching, the way they lead people at Apple. And I also like the way he leads around value. So there's a lot of models that I look at. Mm-hmm. My own coach, I would say Edward is one. Edward, if I have a coaching issue or problem that I'm having, Edward and I exchange things back and forth. I mean, how do I do this? I'm stuck. I need to reset with this client. How do I go forward? And then I would say my wife, because we've been married over 50 years. So I would say that because, you know, we just, uh, we were high school sweethearts, actually. We knew each other in high school. We were best friends all through high school. She knows me very well. And she always has a different perspective on things. She'll say, have you thought about this? Mm. Uh, You should ask that question. She's very good at, at asking questions and getting me to ask more questions. Mm. Um, So I would say she's probably my, uh, my, my go-to person. Awesome. Edward, same question. Obviously, John is an incredible resource. I'm lucky to, to work with uh, uh, someone like John Baird, who has so much experience and not just in the, in the realm of coaching, but also just life experience, you know? Sure. And, you know, one of the advantages I have of running a company with some of the top coaches in the world is I have incredible people around me I can um, call upon all the time. A couple coaches in particular are coming to mind who I'll reach out to for um, advice. I will ask for coaching. One of our coaches just stopped by my place this morning here in New York. Edward, can we go for a walk? I want to, I need a coaching session. Yeah. And we, and, and I coached her. My coach lives down the street. Uh, who's also one of our coaches, Andy Elwood. So I rely on, for me, it kind of takes a village. There isn't that one person yeah. as much as it's a community that we've built here at Velocity where we're all supporting and coaching each other. Sure. And it, I think it elevates all of us. It elevates our craft. And coaching can be a lonely business. Mm. You know, a lot of coaches come to us and like, I didn't know there was a community like this out there, mm. you know, yeah. because there's a lot of coaching platforms, like kind of like Tinder for coaching, but you don't get together with other coaches. It's not a learning environment. And we've created this learning environment. So we're all elevating each other. When it comes to landing some of these clients that you guys work with, what systems or processes are there in place, if any, for generating new business, prospecting clients at that type of a level? Like These are clients that... Who knows? I mean, thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of firms are trying to permeate Fortune 500 companies. And you guys are in at Fortune 10 at the, at the highest level of that. Uh, has that been mostly through relationships, time in the industry, referrals? Yeah. Uh, how, how do you guys? How do you guys look at that? We'll start with uh, we'll start with John. Edward. Well, I think Edward on yeah. this one. I right. it, and I'll, I'll jump in on this one, but I think yeah. this is, yeah, this is one that you lead in our company for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Travis. It's funny at this point, people call us. That's that's our wholesale strategy. That's the place to We've be. We built a you know a book of clients. CEOs talk to each other have heads of HR talk to each other. And I think we've built a reputation where when you know the CEO of a company is looking for a coach, um, she'll call her colleagues, she'll call other folks in the business and say, luckily enough for us, many of them say, call Velocity. And I mm-hmm. think that's been the secret to our success so far. We also have great relationships in the venture community. Really um, very lucky to count firms like Mayfield and Sapphire and Thrive and um, half a dozen others 
as our friends and colleagues. And you know, we tell them, send us your top decile companies, right? Send us the ones that you just invested in where you want to add some rocket fuel to their growth, mm-hmm. as opposed to sending us your laggards. Our coaching is not about, is not remedial. Our coaching is very forward-looking. It's very proactive. And it's for folks who they're like, all right, now that I'm in the Olympics, I want to win that gold medal. I'm going to hire a coach and I want to go to velocity. Yeah. John, anything you'd add there? No, I think you said it well. I mean, it's interesting. We do coach Travis, the stars. We coach the ones that want to be coached, first of all. That yeah. I mean, the, the idea of getting somebody that says you must have a coach. This is happening a lot. I mean, a lot of the startup uh, venture firms are saying, we'll give you all this money, but you have to have a coach. We like it when people come to us and have a commitment, a willingness, a readiness to be coached. We, we actually have a process by assessing that, right? Mm. And there also also has to be, I find, I don't know, Edward, how you feel about this. And we've talked about this. There has to be a little bit of pain uh, there. Like there's, there's like, I don't get this. I'm not good at this. Uh, My team is responding, not responding well. I have a meeting and I throw out an idea. No one contributes to the the idea at all. It's like they, so you have to have a felt need. So I, I like it when people are in pain. I mean, I, I find that when people are struggling with an issue, and they reach out. I mean, most good coaches have coaches. Most therapists have therapists. Most good therapists have therapists. So this idea of working with someone who can actually help them get to the right place is good. So I, I want an openness to, to being able to coach them totally, the total person, not just the person building the business, but that person who's in that role. So yeah, I mean, we... Uh, we get a lot of referrals, but we also want to make sure those people are ready and willing to be coached. Readiness for coaching is a key concept for Velocity. Sure. Making sure that the people that you're taking on are going to get good results so that it does result in more referrals anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That answer basically was what I was kind of expecting to be said. Uh, and, and the reason I asked it is because this is, this is build your network. We talk a ton yeah. about relationships yeah. and yeah. the power and importance of on doing doing things on purpose, engaging in activities on purpose, having a budget even that will allow you to increase the quality of your network on a more yeah. exponential basis rather than an incremental basis because we found that it tends to shorten the timeline to success for most people. I'm curious to hear if you guys have any sort of specific relationship building strategies that you implement at the firm uh, anything that you know from client dinners to specific you know zoom calls or coaching sessions or strategies or anything that helps you to on purpose build more relationships with potential clients or referral yeah. partners or venture yeah. capital firms or anything like that well we should edward talk about the duchess retreats and some of the dinners and some of those things that we have done and are doing we're doing less of that right now because Travis, a lot of work is coming to us, but we should talk about relationship building because I think that's a piece that's really important to Velocity. And we do want to talk yeah. about Duchess and dinner. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. In, the, in the early years, Travis, um, we had an annual retreat, founder retreat, where we'd hand select 12 founders from the community. Um, some would fly in from the West Coast. We had founders down from Toronto and from the New York area, and we'd spend a three-day weekend with them mm-hmm. in an intensive um, coaching environment. Really, there was a fit, very clear agenda. Everyone got one-on-one coaching. We did fishbowl coaching, where we just put one of us and one of them in the middle of the room, and everyone's sitting around. Um, you know, we had campfires and sing-alongs and cooked dinners together. Did some gardening, and it was this incredible bonding experience for 
what was each year 16 of us, four coaches and 12 founders. Mm-hmm. And that really became the, the, the seed crystal of growing the Velocity community. We did that two years in a row. I think it was 18 and 19. And um, we were already off to the races in terms of working with a lot of founders, but we wanted to, as you said, exponentially kind of like create a step change in our reputation and in our network. And by inviting in these different founders for the, who from different communities, and we, we source them through like Founders Pledge, right? These organizations that where a lot of founders are going and sharing ideas and, and being in community to, with each other, we were able to create new seed crystals in new markets. So mm-hmm. like the Toronto startup market has been very hot for us since the uh, first Duchess retreat. retreat yeah. uh, we were able to build a community of founders in Los Angeles, right? So mm-hmm. now we do founders dinners, as you said. Um, I host some of my home here in the West Village. John has had um, some founders down to his place in Santa Cruz where they go out to the beach together. And we're also trying to spend time in places where like-minded people tend to hang out, right? Mm-hmm. So I just got back from TED in Vancouver. I am excited to go um, heli skiing next winter, right? It's like, you know, these are places where people who are doing really cool things tend to go, yeah, right? Sure, and sure. I think it's sometimes it's a, it's a pretty high ticket to get into these events or to do these activities that are, I would say, uh, very privileged to be able to do those things. Sure. But it's also where you meet people. It's like the new country club, mm-hmm. right? right? Is going heli skiing or something like that. Yeah. And, and I mean, I would say the principles remain the same, no matter what level yeah. you're able to invest at, right? It's, yeah. can, can you do yeah. the local dinner first? And then next exactly. time you do the retreat. And then next time you do the next thing and, you know, it keeps scaling that up as you continue going. I, th- yeah. I think, uh, Travis, having a, a network strategy and being very intentional about it is so important for people. I have a client right now that where the company has just grown to 150, it's growing more, and there's an interest in wanting to brand the CEO more. It's an individual who, who isn't networking a lot. So we developed mm-hmm. a strategy around looking at sort of first ring, first, who are those people that are in your immediate network? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But also know other people in the next network, the next circle, Mm -hmm. then who is it in that broader circle? But if you could have a conversation with them, you could. There's a lot of people in my life as I look up, I wish I had a network strategy even more. I mean, the companies grew in spite of it, but I wish I would have said, I should have talked to so-and-so about this Mm. because I could have gotten some advice to scale faster. Mm. So the concentric circles, first level, second, third level is a great strategy for people but spend time and be intentional because it will pay off with the right people and the right venue and the right event and the right outcomes. But be intentional about that. Yeah. Sure. Hey, hey, thanks for listening to this episode. That's it for today. As you all know, this show is completely free. Our only ask is that if you found anything valuable in this episode or in any of the episodes you've listened to, then share it with somebody else and leave us a quick rating review in whatever platform you're listening to right now. It would be super, super helpful for us. Uh, So that's it for today, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in. Catch you next time. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation, and partnership. 
we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.